You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in Southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org. We are coming to the end of a sermon series called Jesus, I Have My Doubts, and we've looked at a number of aspects of this so far today. Um, The thought is, behind this series, is that um, Sunday morning, often in Christianity here in America right now, um, the whole setup is to whip up kind of the sentiment and motivate you to believe and believe and believe and never really have to doubt anything or ever deal. But it also tends to not allow you the questions that you have or the doubts that you might be struggling with. Uh, We don't bring those things up. It's kind of a don't ask, don't tell policy, okay? And uh, we don't ask really how what you're thinking or feeling or how you're doing. And we don't tell you about ourselves and how we're dealing with it, but we all struggle with doubts. We all struggle with anxiety. We all struggle with worry, you know? Believism seems to be preached more than actual faith, okay? And today, often what I hear across the United States, um, when I kind of, and the readings that I've done and and just kind of where the culture is and where a lot of, Christianity is these days, it's the don't think, just believe kind of sentimentality. Um, So the um, great thing about that is it's created a very popular version of Christianity in the country, but at the same time, a very anti-intellectual version of Christianity across the country, whether you realize it or not. Um, Sometimes you get the aw shucks kind of preacher. Do you know what I mean by that? Ah, shucks, I really don't know that much. But, you know, one thing I do know, we just need to trust Jesus more. And so the sermon just doesn't really have much content other than just asking you to trust Jesus more. Or there is the, um, the fear-mongering minister. Do you know what I mean by that? That is, you know, don't think too much because, you know, that university, that is a hotbed of demonic activity where if you think too much about things... They're going to change, you know, have you ever heard that? Yeah. Or you get the kind of the mystic preacher. You know what I mean by that, the mystic? That is where there's a total dichotomy between reason and faith. That if you think about things, you can't really believe. If you believe, you don't need to think. (laughs) Now, as a result of all of this, Here in the United States, over the last, I'd say, 100 years, yes, it's been 100 years of this from what I've read in history, Uh, we have really sold Christianity as an easygoing, enjoyable um, time, comfortable, easy in, easy out access, kind of fast food version. And Mark Knoll at Wheaton College wrote a book. He called it The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind. And this is what he says. The scandal mind is that there is not much of an evangelical mind. We just don't think. So today, it's not really Jesus, I have my doubts, but Jesus, I have a lot of questions. Jesus, I really have thought a lot. Jesus, I have my learning. I have my brain. I have who I am. What am I supposed to do with that? And how does that fit in with faith? As McDonald's is to the restaurant industry... 
I think some of the big box, feel good, hyped up concert, charisma filled preacher church is to Christianity. It can be shallow, doesn't have to be, but it's become an easy in, easy out, quick, fun, comfortable, and mindless at the same time. And that might sound good, but here are some issues with it. First of all, it leads to an intellectually, orient, uh, intellectually oriented people to dismiss the faith altogether. In other words, um, people who pursue academia, so you know, here at the university, for example, at FGCU, or people who are just trying to learn a lot about the world, they come into a church and they've got deep questions and we're not addressing any of them. We just tell them, don't, you know, just drop your brain off at the door. When you come in, just feel, just believe. Don't worry about anything. We keep it simple. It feels to them like they cannot think and be a Christian at the same time, which is totally opposite of what we find out throughout history. Some of the greatest thinkers this world has ever seen have been within the Christian faith. So we're losing people simply because we're not really deeply thinking about how our faith, how the truth of the gospel does fit into this world, and how God made this world, that everything in this world is his. And everything that we learn about this world and how it interacts from biology to chemistry to law to physics to um, sociology, all of it is part of God's creation. And this kind of anti-intellectualism also fosters what I'd say is ill-equipped Christians today. Because in times of ease and comfort, you know, when the culture's kind of flowing in your direction in terms of Christianity, which I think it was up through uh, somewhere in the 50s to early 60s, more or less, you know, to be Christian and to be American was almost the same. Um, having kind of an amusement park style of Christianity, sure, no problem. But now that the current has changed and shifted, and all of a sudden it's not working towards your faith, but towards kind of disbelief or skepticism or actually, you know, mocking of any religious faith at all, um, a shallow version of Christianity just doesn't stand up to this. Paul, in his letter to the Ephesians, even talks about how we need, as Christians, to mature and grow emotionally spiritually, mentally. And he brings it up like this, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Sadly, I think a lot of Christians are there. They just kind of move with and go with the flow of current thought, even though they don't realize they're doing it. Neil Postman, in his book, um, <laughs> Amusing Ourselves to Death, writes, Americans are the best entertained and quite likely the least well-informed people in the Western world. Now, you say, well, that's Americans. But the church is different. I don't think the church has been different too much recently, sadly. You may realize that. You might not. Um, so Dan Kinneman, who's done a lot of research through the Barna Institute on American Christianity and culture, etc., uh, puts it this way, a lot of people within the church are more self-centered and more oriented around the customs and norms of the world of the largest society than they are to the gospel, to the truth of Jesus Christ. We've just kind of gone with the flow. 
Thirdly, it also promotes uh, a poor or incomplete stewardship of what God has given us in this world. So when Jesus interacted with the scribe, a very learned man during his lifetime, um, and he was asked what the greatest commandment is, this is what Jesus said. This is from, directly quoted in scripture in the Old Testament. Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is like this. You shall love the Lord your, your neighbor as yourself. There is no greater commandment than these. You are to love the Lord your God with everything that you've got that includes your mind. What a thought, huh? And look at Jesus himself. You could say, well, he's God. He knew everything already. But yet Jesus submitted himself during his earthly life to learning just like us. Did you know that? He learned language like we did. He learned the scriptures like we did. He was fully human in those ways. Luke chapter 2 says, And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Basically, he kept growing up as a child. The Christian faith is not anti-intellectual. It's actually pro-intellectual. And it is pro-emotion and pro-action and pro-world and pro-creation because God made it all. Now, you might be saying to me, you know me. Some of you know me too well. John, of course, you're talking like this. This is a sermon just right up your alley because you like to read books, and you like to learn, and you like to grow. Yeah, right? Yeah, I know. I got a comment, I guess, and rate my professor, right? <laughs> what was that again, Kevin? Uh, it was that John has a PhD and assumes that everyone else does too. Yeah. <laughs> I don't have a PhD, I have a doctorate, but I assume everybody else is supposed to too in the classroom and <sighs> sorry. But I'll tell you this, at the same time I know it's important to you that whoever you're going to as an expert or, or hopefully you go to as an expert or as a professional knows her stuff, his stuff, right? For instance, if I go to a mechanic with my car and I don't know what the problem is, and the person is also a Christian, I am hoping the person doesn't turn around and say, oh, John, this is, okay, well, I'm going to, you know, just give your car over to the Lord. I'm going to anoint it with some motor oil, lay my hands on it, and pray that the Lord will heal it from the demon of dysfunction that it seems to have. That'll be $250. We don't do that. We don't do that with our automobiles. Why would we do that with medicine? Why would we do that with anything? We go and we expect the learning in this world to actually matter. And yet you see Christians all the time just kind of saying, all I have to do is just give it to the Lord. And I have no problem with giving it to the Lord. What I have a problem with and I've used it myself, when I give it over to the Lord, it's a way for me to be lazy and not have to think. Not have to struggle with something. That is not the way of the Bible. So today, we're going to look at the life of someone briefly. I know, was that a long introduction or what? Yeah, well, we're about halfway through, okay. Well, maybe not quite half. But um, we're going to look at the life of someone who faced the currents against his own faith. He didn't hide from 
the culture of his time. He didn't retreat from it. He didn't just give it to the Lord and just kind of coast. He learned, he studied, he engaged. He and his friends actually thrived in a very hostile, polytheistic, power-playing environment that they lived in. They learned as much as they could of the world and of science and culture and religion and engaged in the culture itself that they were embedded in for its own good, even though it was not the culture that was of their faith. And they helped God's people get through a very difficult time of dislocation or exile. And any guesses who this is? It's Daniel in Babylon. He's a good model. So we're going to be reading from Daniel chapter 1 this morning. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of Chal the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among them were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. Now we go down to verse 17 as, For these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and the enchanters that were in his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. So we're going to learn three points from this passage today. First of all, how Daniel and his fellow friends engaged the mind, and then they discerned the difference, but they also knew the maker. So engage the mind. So Daniel 1.5 says they were educated for three years, and at the end of the time they were to stand before the king. So they had three years of learning, and then final exam. And talk about a final exam, it was before the king, you know? which I have a feeling if they would have slacked off, they may have had their head cut off as well or something like that. This was not just a final for a class where if you pass or fail, um, failing was not an option. But what happened is you find out Daniel and his friends were trained in everything that Babylon had to offer, and it was a sophisticated culture. They learned language and art and science astronomy, and religion. Um, maybe the Nebuchadnezzar, the king, wanted to turn this generation of Israel's leader into good Babylonians, and he even gave names to each of them that had a Babylonian god embedded in it, as you know, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, right? And Daniel's name was Belshazzar. So Daniel and his friends participated and learned everything they could. And they learned so much that they were better than almost any of their contemporaries. They excelled. Now, God gave them favor in that sense. But they worked at it. You know, in my class, I may have Christians in my classes that 
FGCU that I teach. And they may come and say, you know, I'm just praying that I do well on this midterm. And I will look at them and say, yeah, but you better study too. <laughs> you know, you better study too. Don't expect that, you know, put your book under the pillow and just, you know, Lord, just let that transfer in. You know, it's just not going to work that way. And um, so, um, like, oh, Lord, I'm praying for a job. Well, great, get out there and start looking for one, too. Don't just act like God's going to drop everything in your hands. That's not the way it works. You don't just, quote, give it over to the Lord. And Daniel and his friends didn't say, okay, Lord, just bless us with knowledge. They worked at it. So Christopher Wright says it this way. They needed to know what the Babylonians believed. They didn't need to believe it themselves. There is surely a lesson there that speaks to the challenge of living as believers within secular culture. We need to understand the culture we live in without sharing its belief system. So it is a challenge. It is a challenge to engage the mind. It's a challenge to be in higher education. It's a challenge to be in this world, to learn, to grow, and to not at the same time um, fall into the thought patterns the way of life that may be antithetical to the Christian faith. But it's also, notice, it's easier to entertain the mind than it is to teach the mind. And we need to understand that they learned and they worked at it. Now you might say, um, why do we even need to engage the mind? You know, um, John, you're not saying that um, there's going to be some test someday at the pearly gates. And it depends on how I answer all the questions if I get the information right, whether I get in. No, I'm not. You are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, period. I am not saved by my intellect or my, the information I know. Praise God. There is a day I may not know most of the information I know now. <laughs> Seems to already be starting. But um, no, we're saved by grace at the same time uh, intelligence is not necessarily a virtue, but ignorance isn't either. And why engage the mind? Well, because um, when Christians spout off misinformation, <laughs> when they uh, just throw out their blowhard opinions, we play the fool and we are not glorifying God. It's not a new phenomenon that just started with the internet or social media, okay? This has been going on a long time. In fact, Augustine of Hippo in the fifth century, so what, 1,500 years ago, he wrote this, often a non-Christian knows something about the earth, the heavens, and the other parts of the world about the motions and orbits of the stars and even their sizes and distances. And this knowledge he holds with certainty from reason and experience. It is thus offensive and disgraceful for an unbeliever to hear a Christian talk nonsense about such things, claiming that what he is saying is based in scripture. We should do all we can to avoid such an embarrassing situation, which people see as ignorance in the Christian and laugh to scorn. Yes, you can if you want, but this is St. Augustine, right? This isn't me. I didn't come up with this. He already saw this problem where we don't want to actually engage in the world and learn from it to be able to have a better winsome faith. This is God's world, right? Because creation is actually good, even though it's broken or fallen. 
because God loves this world, because God is redeeming this world, is recreating this world, because God entered this world as a human being himself, we have all the reason to study and to learn and to grow and to develop our mind and to love the Lord our God with our mind and strength and soul and heart. Secondly, we're talking about discerning the difference. Now, you might say, John, I know the scriptures, and in the scriptures there is also a warning about too much knowledge. I don't think it really is about too much knowledge, but what knowledge might produce, okay? So Paul, for instance, writes in 1 Corinthians, now concerning food offers to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but loves builds up. It's very easy for knowledge to become arrogance. Very easy. But guess what? So can ignorance become arrogance. <laughs> it really can. Because Paul in the same book says this way, now concerning spiritual gifts, brother, I do not want you to be uninformed. He doesn't want you to not know what's going on. At the same time, he doesn't want you to rely on your knowledge. You need to discern the ability to know that whatever I know it's all by God's grace. It's all for God's glory. Like Daniel and his friends did not tout how wonderful they were and how great they were. That was not their message. Again and again, Daniel acknowledges who God is and how he is utterly dependent on him at the same time as how he learned. So um, somehow, Daniel avoids the tw twin pitfalls of that arrogant understanding of look at how smart I am but also that unconscious assimilation into just going with the flow of Babylon. You know, later in the book of Daniel, when Babylon has fallen, Persia has taken over, King Darius comes to the throne, Darius becomes very arrogant himself and allows a law to be passed that says, everybody for the next month has to worship me and pray to me only. I'm the end all and be all. And when Daniel heard this, he didn't buy into it, didn't go with the flow. This is what we read in Daniel 6.10. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. He kept his routines. When I was in Gainesville, Florida, I was a pastor of a church that happened to have a couple of pretty prominent people in education there. One was Al Roten. He became the father of the microsurgery of the brain. He wrote, he has, I think it still is pretty well, the, um, the number one textbook on brain anatomy. He was the neurosurgeon of the year internationally, and he was on almost every neurosurgical um, committee or board around the world. He would go to Japan, all this place. Um, he's passed away recently. He, he invented 300 different instruments to be used in microsurgery on the brain. And yet, he never forgot to be in worship, and he also never forgot who God was and how important that was. When I went to the hospital room, he was there for, I can't remember what kind of surgery. He didn't often have any problems, but he was there. And um, he, he said, John, it comes down to this time and again. 
the thing that I remember time and again is the simple song that um, it, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. It's great intellectual knowledge, deep level of humility and understanding of his dependence on God. That's where Daniel is in this passage as well. Jesus sends us into the world as he was sent into the world. He says that as much, time and again. And in John 17, he prays this prayer both for his 12 disciples and other followers at the time, and for us. And he puts it this way, I do not ask that you take them out of this world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Powerful passage about how to be in this world, but not of it to learn and to grow and to be sent in this world for the sake of this world that God loves, and yet not to be overcome by this world or assimilated into its thought processes and mind. Now, you might be going like, how in the world do I ever do this? And I think that's our third and final point. It's to know the maker. To know your maker who made you, who made this world, who set it all up, who's done amazing things. Um, recently, I heard a wonderful, wonderful interview with Dr. Francis Collins. Anybody know who he is? He just retired from the NIH, National Institute of Health. He was in charge of the Human Genome Project, and he's a very strong Christian. But he didn't start out that way. In the interview, um, if you're in the U version of the Bible app, you get, there's a link that you can go right to the transcript of this interview. Um, anyways, when he was um, in high school and going into college, he rejected theism or a belief in any god or religion because he thought it was just superstitious, anachronistic, ancient, you know, a hangover, um, a cop-out. He was definitely into studying and understanding the world. He was studying quantum mechanics in undergraduate school. And during that time, he realized that you could basically understand almost anything in this world through a secondary algorithmic um, equation, differential equation. But physics wasn't the direction he went. He finally went into medicine. And as he was in his residency, he started to encounter people whom the answers to medicine kind of like ended. You know, like they were facing life and death situations. He gave them all the medical knowledge that he had, and yet he couldn't give them everything that they needed. And yet these people often had a faith. And he was challenged by that. He didn't understand it. And then some patient one day finally asked him, so Dr. Collins, what is it that you believe? And he thought, huh, I don't know. He writes, as I began to ask a few questions of those people, I realized something very fundamental. I had made a decision to reject any faith view of the world without ever really knowing what it was that I had rejected. And that worried me. As a scientist, you're not supposed to make decisions without the data. It was pretty clear I hadn't done my data collecting here and about what these faiths stood for. So over time, he encountered different questions. He encountered a Methodist minister who gave him a copy 
of Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis that outlines all the arguments that doesn't just tell you that maybe it's possible to still believe in God and think, but that it's plausible to believe in God. He goes on, that was a concept I was really unprepared to hear. Until then, I don't think anyone had ever suggested to me that faith was a conclusion that one could arrive at on the basis of rational thought. I, and I suspect many other scientists, who never really looked at the evidence, had kind of assumed that faith was something that you arrived at either because it was drummed into your head when you were a little kid, or by some emotional experience or some sort of cultural pressure. The idea that you would arrive at faith because it made sense because it was rational, because it was the most appropriate choice when presented with the data. That was a new concept, and yet reading through the pages of Lewis's book, I came to that conclusion over the course of several very painful weeks. But he doesn't stop there in the interview. It goes on quite a while. It's really a good read. He gets down to why it came down to a personal choice to know the maker the one who made him, the one who made this world, this beautiful world that he was a part of, the one he could have a personal relationship with. He said this sense that God is not some distant concept, some ethereal fuzzy entity. God became personal for me at that moment. That really was the decision I was making to believe not just in God, but in a God who wishes to fellowship with me. That God is a God who both created the universe and also had a plan that included me as an individual human being. And that he has made it possible for me through this series of explorations to realize that it's not just a philosophy, it's reality of a relationship. The Bible can be approached rationally where rationalism is not the center. But to understand what God is saying to engage your mind, to engage your heart, to engage your life as he himself enters into human history. The maker becomes one who is made human in Jesus Christ. The blueprint for everything that has been made as uh, Ephesians and Colossians states, the one through whom all things were made has now become a human being, one who is made just so he can personal relationship with you in Jesus Christ. Jesus is, according to Paul, our wisdom and our knowledge. He is the word, according to John. That word logos, which means reason or logic behind everything that you see. And the logic that's behind it all is not a logic of rationality only or concepts or ideas, but of love. A love that knows no bounds, that would go to no, uh, would not stop at anything to get to know you, to personally be there for you, to sacrifice all, to give of self completely, to empty self through that cross and resurrection. And there we see what love really is defined so graphically, materially, at that moment in time where Jesus Christ takes your place, dies your death, and gives you his life, pours out everything for you. And God says, I am engaging your mind. I'm engaging your heart. I'm engaging your emotions. I'm engaging your strength. I'm engaging everything about you because I want you, nothing less than you, all of you, completely. My eternity is not going to be complete without you, God says. And I promise to be with you always. You are going to be a part of my eternity. And I'm going to be a part of you. You're going to live in this relational love forever. 
Daniel realized he had a God who was faithful, a God who called him to learn and to grow, and a God who gave him favor, and a God who gave him a position of influence. God wants us also to be well-informed and to grow and to engage. It's not just so that we make this world a better place, although that's not a bad start. It's his world. But it's also so that we can marvel and wonder at his love, not just now, but for eternity. So Jesus, I have my mind, and he wants my mind to be engaged with him. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you this day for your word, your truth. We are amazed, Lord, um, that it's not just a matter of blind faith or irrational thoughts or emotions. It's also a matter of the mind and rationality. You call us, Lord, to understand you, to know you, and to know your world well. I pray, Lord God, that you would be working in our hearts and lives right now in that way. We pray, Lord, for people we know who are much more intellectually based, who are struggling with these things. We feel a little at a loss to engage them, and yet, Lord, we ask that you would be working in their lives. Let them know a place like this exists, that we have people who can and have throughout the ages struggled and wrestled with the deepest questions of philosophy and science, and have come to understand you as the maker behind it all. Lord God, we lift up to you um, our uh, support dinner this week. We thank you, Lord, for how you have connected us both here in Estero with this community, but also with the university, how we can engage both at the same time, that it's not a matter of thinking or believing, but of both together, of reason and faith together, Lord God. We thank you, Lord, that we have that unique position to be here in Estero at this time and at this university at this time. We pray, Lord God, that all of our um, daily lives, that we are mindful of you, that we know you more, and that we live in that knowledge and learn of your world evermore. Lord God, um, we ask that you would bless us now as we prepare our hearts and our lives to receive Um, a, a gift that just kind of blows away our understanding. The mystery of your love and grace, Lord Jesus, that you would give yourself to us as we receive Holy Communion in just a few minutes, the Lord's Supper. Forgive us, Lord, for um, any any ways that we have um, sinned against you or against others, Lord. We know we, we have. We're broken and fallen. We've been rebellious even. Forgive us, renew us, and lead us that we might delight in your will, Lord God, and live in your ways and grow in our knowledge to grow in our love. And Lord, as uh, we uh, conclude this um, online streaming live, uh, streaming right now at this time, we pray that you'd bless those who are listening at home, that you would engage them with their rationality and their emotions and their whole being, that you draw near to them as, and have them draw near to you. Bless them, Lord, in whatever shape they are in right now, Lord, if they need healing, if they're struggling with worry or finances or depression or grief, Lord God, just bring your healing balm to them. 
And be with us all here, Lord, as we now gather our tithes and offerings to glorify you and to give back to you for all the bounty you've given to us. All these things we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.